everyone, and welcome to another season of the UX Research Rundown. I'm Henrik Matsson, the CEO of Lookback, and your host uh, for this show. And it's a brand new season, season number three. For two seasons, we've been talking about getting your team along on the journey that is uh, research, and that's been fun. But now we're moving on to something else, and we're going to talk this season about uh, AI, LLM, and UX research, and all of that stuff. And we have a great lineup of very interesting uh, speakers. And the first one that I'm talking to today is Jess Holbrook, who is at Meta. And I'll let him uh, introduce himself just in a moment here. Um, and um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate it. It's fun to be able to maybe you know kick off the, the third season. Congrats on that. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so, you know, we always do this thing per ancient tradition in these three seasons that we have now. Uh, we ask our guests to talk a little bit about, you know, introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about how you got into the field. Because, uh, uh, you know, we always get a lot of good feedback from uh, the listeners uh, who are often getting into the field or, or you know, just starting out. And uh, it's great to hear all of these different stories about how people get in and the backgrounds and stuff like that. So uh, we can start with that and then we'll get on to the, to the topic at hand. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, so my current role is I'm a principal researcher and the acting director of the generative AI team, uh, UX research team at Meta. Um, and uh, before that, I led the responsible AI UX research team here at Meta. Uh, before that, I had a very similar role at Google, and I started a group called People Plus AI Research, or PAIR, there with two of my co-founders. Um, and before that, I was at Amazon and Microsoft. Uh, the my story about how I got into the field is a fairly happenstance, actually. So I was in grad school at the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon, and I kind of needed a summer job to pay my rent that summer. Uh, and so I think I joined the only startup in Eugene, Oregon uh, at that time. And as part of being a startup and being an intern, you know, you just come in and find out what you're going to do each day. And one day, you know, the, the people I was working for were basically like, hey, could you design the page? that uh, we sell our ads on for our website. And I was like, sure, no problem. They're like, great, here's, uh, yeah, just use Dreamweaver. And I was like, cool, what's what's Dreamweaver? And, you know, people of a certain vintage uh, listening to your show will either get that reference or they'll be furiously Googling or TikToking right now. Um, and so I started just play around with that. And I started to just basically like comment out code and say, oh, huh, when I get rid of that code, it moves this thing that was in the middle towards the left. Oh, weird, it changes this color. Oh, okay, that's where this image is coming from. I went back to my advisor, and I didn't even have words for design. So I said, hey, I like psychology. Uh, I was going to grad school for psychology. I like psychology, I like technology, and I like art. I didn't even have the language. And he connected me with a really brilliant uh, advisor at the University of Oregon. Um, and she totally took me under her wing. Um, and got me into all the HCI work and cared about me and invested in me. Um, and that's a, a huge part. So to, to this day, I, I try to spend a decent amount of time on uh, mentorship, on working with um, our pipeline, um, because I, I really believe that, you know, whatever uh, amount of success I've had has been in no small part about people caring about me and deciding I matter and trying to help me along the way. And so I, I think it's really important. Uh, especially for like, you know, the people you talk to on a podcast like this is that they're sending the elevator back down uh, and, and keeping that pipeline yeah, one, going. 100 percent. 100 percent. That's great that you're doing that. Yeah. 
Cool. So this, uh, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt your your story there, but I, I oh, think no, that's that was, a very... That was, and then, yeah. well, yeah, and then, I mean, maybe this is another part of the don't get discouraged. Um, then I applied to 50 different places, and I got rejected by 49 of them. Um, and then I got on as a contractor at Microsoft, and that's some great people that I still consider mentors uh, to this day and, and kind of got full-time positions from there. Nice. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's, I remember similar similar background uh, in, in terms of like all the mentorship and everything. And when I look, you know, back at that, I'm, I, I just once you're in, you you don't. I don't know if you had this feeling, but I'm like, how how did I? This was impossible. Like, how did I get in? And then you're in, and then you're trying to help other people. So it's uh, it's yeah, it's don't get discouraged. Is the message there? I guess. So how did you get into the to the AI stuff and? You know, uh, broadly, like what kind of AI uh, stuff are you working on? When you say you're kind of directing the research team on generative AI, what, what does that mean? Yeah, I I always think, think it's interesting because I've been in the AI space for, I guess it's closer to 10 years than it is nine at this point. And, you know, but I, but I work with people who you know got their PhDs in AI in, you know, the 1980s. So in a lot of ways, I still feel like I'm kind of brand new and I'm I just showed up and I'm kind of trying to contribute something. Um, but I was actually working on the cloud team at Google, and this is when the cloud team there was teeny tiny, and now it's you know tens of thousands of people or whatever. And uh, this uh, director came over uh, from Microsoft uh, who joined Google and Google Research, and uh, he kind of gave a talk about how he was starting a team and his vision uh, for personal AI and all these things. His name's uh, Blaise Aguariarchus, the, the people of, you know, he's known-ish. <laughs> and, um, and I was really inspired by it. And so I said, hey, let me come over. And so I joined his team when it was him and 10 engineers just hopped over. And I was like, wow, this is really exciting. This is when this is kind of like ImageNet just after that. So the deep learning models had just kind of proven their superiority to the previous um, implementations. And so everyone was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to work. We're going to be able to put this into products. And so from there, you know, we started to build up a UX team, you know, to my knowledge, I was one of the first UXers in the research division at Google. I know that there were people before me, but like of that era, I think I was one of the very first. Um, and so we started building up the team, but we, and as we were doing that, we were trying to build products and we started to notice these commonalities, these patterns, right? About around like the uncertainty of AI or the anthropomorphization of AI or, or just the way that the false beliefs that people have. And so we started to put those together into a series of principles and, and, you know, kind of durable insights and, you know, myself and Josh Lovejoy started a group, started a thing that we called human centered machine learning. And then later on, we started this group uh, called people plus AI research with Fernando Villegas and Martin Wattenberg. And we kind of built that uh, into a whole kind of lab, I guess you would call it. Um, and from there um, I, I led the UX team. Uh, so, we kind of, the space has also gone through these metamorphoses over time. And so we used to kind of talk about it as human-centered AI and then kind of the umbrella term of like responsible AI started to kind of take over. And so then I led the responsible AI UX team uh, there. Uh, and so then, and then came over and, and did a similar role here. And so now that brings me to like the day-to-day -day job. So um, we just launched uh, a few things, uh, what was it uh, two weeks ago at Connect? Uh, our big event, which were uh, a series of AI agents that are powered by uh, the 
uh, Meta's uh, main LLM, Lambda uh, uh, Llama, <laughs> too. Um, and then uh, an AI assistant called Meta AI, and then um, some image generation tools, one for stickers and another uh, for doing text to imagery. Uh, and so the day-to-day -day really looks like stuff that would look very familiar to other people, which is kind of like just basic product work, like what is our strategy? Who are our users? What do they want? Are we building something that works for them? Is it usable? All that. Um, but then we also get to much deeper levels, um, which can be one of the things that's most interesting to me about AI is that we, especially as UX researchers and UXers, have much more of a say in how it's made than, than just about any other platform behind before. You know, it's like when cloud rose, we weren't having these discussions about like a responsible cloud or anything like that, you know, or, or mobile or anything like that. And so um, then we get into things like how we define success for the underlying base models or the tuned models, um, what kind of prompt engineering techniques uh, we can develop and replicate, um, tons around safety and red teaming um, of models, which have, have really risen uh, in importance recently, um, and then all the way to you know working on some of the marketing and messaging work there too. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this because it's a good reminder that this is actually, I wouldn't say it's old technology, but it's been around for, for a while. And now it's just had this kind of, you know, with the LLM stuff, uh, this big rise to global fame, <laughs> you know, everyone is using the different models. And yeah. stuff. So, so how's that when you're on the inside, how, how does it feel to be in your field in the last whatever year, year, you know, six months or something? Yeah, like uh, in a dishwasher or in the, you know, in the in the washing machine, maybe it's more like, you know, anybody who claims that they're up on everything that's happening is, you know, has a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you kind of thing. It's yeah. it's uh, it's been fascinating to see, you know, it's been fascinating to see how many people are now Gen AI experts. Right. You know, that that's how these things go. Um, sure. I mean, I, I think before the Gen AI, before, you know, the the chat GPT moment or whatever you want to call it is. Um, before that, I mean, I mean, I mean, to this day, it's, I, I still think it's super, it's incredibly fun stuff to work with. Like, you know, not here by accident, not here sleepwalking. Like I regularly check in on myself of, okay, is it time to do something else? And I'm still saying to myself, no, I think this is the most interesting thing I could do with my time still. Um, and what was fascinating is, you know, we're coming up, we're like on 11 months now since chat GPT. The, the greatest, you know, this is giving uh, Engelbart some some run for his money as greatest demo of all time, right? So they, they put out the chat GPT is basically a demo of the model to, to, right, to the, right. the website to be like, hey, check it out. Our model's really good. And they had the greatest accidental consumer product success in history, I think. You know, they, they skyrocket and and it and it's always fascinating to me too what pierces into the the public conscious, the, the public conversation, right? So, you know, when the few shot learners paper came out, you know, we were all nerding out on it and and going, oh my God, do you understand what this means? And like, you know, and then you kind of, so we kind of hype cycle ahead of that, right? We're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then you kind of go, wait, wait, wait. And, you know, you pull back and, and you say, okay. And, you know, you'll have um, uh, kind of point of views on both sides. And then, you know, I always try to be and have maintained as this kind of pragmatist in the middle of like, okay, so here's what it can do. Here's what it can't do. Here's what we need to figure out. And at the end of the day, um, to use a cliche, it still has to solve a problem, 
or else, you know, you can kind of push it into as many things as you want and people will reject it. They'll just be, you know, a big no thank you, essentially. Um, when you're talking about a lot of like consumer products and products that have choice around them. And so um, that's been really fascinating. So ever since then, it's just been this kind of rocket ship. And I think that whenever that happens, you have a bunch of uh, incentive uh, misalignment across the board. And so some people are trying to, you know, push an agenda or a message. Some people are trying to go super fast to catch, you know, some kind of reward. And so for UX research, it's really important that we both ride the tiger, um, but remind, but stay focused on what we know matters, which is, okay, are you going to make people's lives better um, in a way that you can, that they can articulate back to you and that you can measure somehow? Um, and then is that good for the business that you're working for? Yeah. Uh, it's been, uh, super interesting. The, so just to kind of make sure I understand this, it, it, you can, it, would you say it's fair to say that there's kind of this, you work on, you know, the, the rise of this technology, and if we talk about LLM now and kind of the, you know, the chat GPT, uh, GPT moment, um, I still don't get those letters right. I think I got it right now. But I'm almost <laughs> like, did I say it right? <laughs> did I say it right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so th that presents new challenges to researchers as to kind of, you know, how do we actually research this kind of product that we build on top of these technologies and what it does? But it also introduces the t these technologies as a tool into our, our work. So how much of each have you... Uh, have you experienced and 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 thus the you know does the rise of the tooling space feel distinct from the other stuff or is it all the same or like you know tell us a little bit about that experience for you know coming from this kind of long ten year experience in this field yeah i yeah because it's been interesting because so far before the llms there wasn't a huge AI shift that really affected u x research work i mean at, at the margin, but not it didn't upend how we do what we do or anything like that. Um, and I, I don't know if this one is going to upend how we do what we do. Um, it's going to change it. Um, and so my experience has been far more on the how do we apply this to products? What is the responsible way of using this kind of technology? Um, and far less on the what does this mean for UX research? Um, and it is funny because I get, I, I need to actually do a lot more here because I get asked this because people are like, oh, you're the Gen AI, you know, researcher, like you, you're, you're doing this, right? So I will tell you what I've observed though in the conversation. And what's interesting is one is it's kind of funny to see UX research kind of have the same reaction to a lot of other people, which is like, oh my God, it's going to do my job for me. Like, what am I going to do now? Where, you know, I look at that and say, like, I mean, if you think that your job is summarizing, you know, quotes from a study, like, I don't think you understand what the job of a UX researcher is. Um, and I think that that's, that's more of where we, where we need to start. So, so I think that, you know, there's this really kind of like tactical level that it'll hit, right? Like, it will probably help us summarize things faster. Yep. Transcriptions are going to get a lot better. Yep searching through structured databases or, or even unstructured, um, you know, transcripts for insights is going to, we're going to get a leg up there for sure. Um, we're going to figure out the, how well the models do with that. We're going to figure out where the hallucinations come in. We're going to address that. We're going to march on and we'll, yeah, we'll probably be like faster at all of that. 
I think one of the more exciting things there too is being able to look across broad, uh, structured and unstructured, you know, data. What do I want to call it? Data, like, you know, data archives. Data. I think sometimes they're called like data lakes. You know, it's it's this. You know, I'm talking about tens of thousands of reports or data points or things like that, and being able to really focus in on things like insights versus you know what team did this come from or what product was it about, but to look across everything, you know, and even just say it like tiny little interaction patterns, you know, like, like every, everyone at every company at some point has for an, for a mobile app has been asked, like, should we do long press? You know, and you're like, well, well, there's lots of research on long press across a zillion different things. So maybe we can, maybe we can pull that all together. Um, to me, the most interesting thing, though, and so you, and then you have these other like little accelerations, right? So the cost of first drafts just went to zero. So writing your report, the template stuff, done. Like it's all good to go. Um, you know, there, there's uh, this is also highly bounded in the current uh, abilities of the models, especially around languages. So we're just talking about English right now. Outside of that, you know, mostly it's not much going to be much help to you. Um, and then the more provocative thing I've seen of the, like, the AI is going to take the UX researcher's job is there'll be, uh, you know, a proposal or a company or something that's like, oh, you can just ask a model. You don't have to ask users. Yeah. I love that one. Yeah. And I'm always, you know, so I'll say like, for me, for me, I had the, I have the like emotional reaction to that when I hear that, like, which I think anybody does, which is, which is one is I think it's actually really good for us to hear that, to, to build our empathy with better with people. Like it's, it's good because we kind of a lot of times sit in a spot that feels unaiable. So one is I like that that little shock uh, hits us, but then two, I kind of said, okay, well take your emotion out of it. What is it? And I said, well, yeah, if, if it's a tool. So if what you really think is the best feedback for you is to, you know, query a statistical representation of what an average human on the internet, uh, based on who is on the internet and who has put, um, who has put content on the internet would reply to this question, then you should use that. That makes sense. Now I'm going to bet that's not actually what you need. Um, and then for me personally, I kind of have a thing of, I don't, I don't trust anybody who doesn't want to talk to their customers. Like, like I don't trust the person. That's the cause who, right there. Yeah. No, it's, it's like, would you do business with somebody who, you know, if I go get my oil changed and the manager doesn't want to talk to me, like what, what is yeah. that? Like they're, you know, and it's, I look at it as one of two things, either one, their, their business is going to fail. So why prolong it? <laughs> and then the other is, yeah they have such a structural advantage or something else in the market that nothing will, will, will be that. So, so, you know, the work is relevant. Um, I do think though, uh, I'll add kind of one more thing on, onto this of like the role of gen AI in the work of UX research is I do think it's, you know, it has to come back to how do we, how do we use this to better understand people and have more durable insights about human behavior as it relates to technology and business, rather than how does it speed some tasks up or change the way we do some tasks. And I don't think we're scratching at that. I think we're like actually highly distracted by the like, it's going to speed up some tasks or I'm not going to be able to do these tasks. And we're not nearly as focused enough on, so how is this helping us understand human nature much more deeply? 
Right. And do you mean, like totally apart from the conversations we're having, just kind of like having the having the models figure out something about humans that we don't that we don't know, or are you talking about like in conversations? How can we kind of enhance that somehow? Like in yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think more of the former. So I'm a social psychologist by training, and I'm like, this is one of the greatest statistical re representations of human communication we've ever been able to construct. And yet we're kind of treating it like, you know, a lot of times as a, as a fairly um, surface level implementation detail on some things. And I'm like, I think that there will be a whole social science around LLMs. Like, I don't think it will dominate, but I think like, like you have tons of social scientists who look very closely at like network theory and like social media platforms. Like these will be an artifact of that level that they will mine for insights and not blindly. Cause I know, I mean, I can already hear, you know, I can't remember, you know, many of my colleagues just hopped up on my shoulder and they're like, Jess, what do you hold on? You, you got to talk about the bias. You got to talk about all the errors. You got to talk all the problems. And there, there is all that, but everyone I've talked to that's thought seriously about this idea as well. is like very eyes wide open about that and, and trying to examine, trying to use it as a tool with those caveats. Yeah. That's, uh, I could nerd out on this. Uh, my, my background is economic <laughs> geography, so so you know I, I I grew up like reading all of these like geographers in the '60s that tried to build these like time geography models that they call it, which basically they're they're basically trying to figure out you know we're kind of corporeal beings that need to like we live in our little worlds that are like local environments and then there are networks and then we have like mm -hmm. our desires and stuff and, we, and they just try to model all of that to kind of predict society basically and and it was you know back in the 60s they were just like yeah we're gonna figure this out they didn't have the data to do it but there's a lot of stuff like that that could actually uh you know be done now in a sense with this kind of model so it's it's yeah yeah it's an interesting and that's obviously going to help as as a context for the research so but but if I can dig down into, you know the the whole kind of where do we go with the with the with the tool and and stuff like that. I mean, uh, someone sent me this paper. An investor uh, sent me a paper. Well, you should just build like you know AI participants, these fake participants, basically. And it's like yeah. here's the paper that proves that that's possible. And it's like the the paper was basically around like. You could do this like to replace like a survey or something like that. Like the, uh, uh, this model will perform better than a survey. But that makes me think about something that I want to kind of uh, uh, try out on you. That you know way more about this with me. You know the whole quant qual conf war. You know <laughs> or like or dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. It's like why do we do quantitative stuff like surveys and stuff like that? Well, we do it because we need to be able to analyze the data. It's like we're kind of forcing humans to to answer pre pre selected buckets so that then we can make a nice graph on that instead of just having them speak freely, whatever, right? Which we do in a more deep qualitative way. But it struck me that these LLMs, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this. What they do actually is they kind of solve that problem because you can look now at extremely rich qualitative data sets. So you have no need no to do like a survey now. Like yeah. what do you uh, what do you think about the potential of that stuff? Am I kind of completely misunderstanding something here or No, I think that I mean yeah, so quant quant qual divide yeah, a couple of things you hit on in there. I mean, quant qual divide to me has always been weird. Like my 
I began my, my whole undergrad and grad school was all about applying cognitive methods to social phenomenon. So like my undergrad lab was the implicit association test lab, like Tony Greenwald's lab in the University of Washington. So it was, you know, basically like how can we quant these like super qual things? Um, and so I don't know, to me, like you're always kind of doing both, you know, with, with the quant data though, in a lot of ways, you know, there's, there's kind of the, you know, quant and qual, it's like, do you want the tyranny of math or the tyranny of language? Um, because it's going to like force you down a particular path, depending on when you say I'm going to bundle up these this um ob- these observations, if you will. And so, you know, with the, with the the quantification as well, though, it allows you, uh, you know, the quantification is nice because it allows you to fulfill the assumptions of most statistical analyses. Um, again, these are things that I think get lost in a lot of these conversations. Uh, you know, I love I love the uh, uh, the one paper thing where I'm like, people people are like, a paper says blank. I'm like, do you do you know how science works? Do you think we do anything based on a single paper? Like, especially in certain fields. Now, sometimes, you know, in in some physics fields or something, even then you would still want multiple papers to to validate something or to or to build evidence uh, toward it. Um, and so and then in the qual realm, I think that that's the really the interesting thing is that, you know, it'll start to give structure. And by structure, we need some kind of reduction, some kind of simplification, right? Like, uh, oh, this is fun. We're like going there now. Uh, you know, I mean, this comes back to the limitations of human attention and our ability to to take in these different inputs. And that's why we need abstractions. And that's why we need to have these um, simplified representations of knowledge uh, because, you know, the whole wide world would be too much to take. Um, and so it'll allow us, in theory, it'll allow us to draw, be able to abstract that in ways that are not, that are more useful. Um, but, you know, your question is really prompting of like, but we don't exactly understand how it's becoming structured. And that could be problematic because with a relational database or, you know, if we're just running an ANOVA or something like that, like I know how everything's being structured. It's a formula. It's very clear. Um, And so I can interrogate that and I can assume I can examine the assumptions and I can decide how much I trust it. You know, this is one of the challenges, although the field is moving rapidly. uh, I haven't read it, but Anthropic put out a paper this week that seems to be a a big step forward in terms of the interpretability of models. Um, So uh, like all of this, it's like, you know, we're not even a year into the chat GPT era. So just uh, thank you for that. So um, follow up question on that when you, you know, the structure, I agree. I mean, this is obviously a big problem. What we're trying to do when we're building tooling in this is to always keep the transparency, right? You know, it's like, where does Mm -hmm. this come from? (laughs) You know, why did it say... Uh, because we're kind of building just quickly two things. Like one is just like headlines, so you can just get an overview of things. So it takes the mm-hmm. transcripts and it's just like, here they're talking about this, here they're talking about this and stuff like that. And because it's timestamped, you can just always go and see, well, give me a highlight reel of that. Yeah, okay, well, actually it's correct. You can see that the human said this thing. And the other thing is basically just like whenever a researcher puts a little, presses a button, instead of having yeah. to take a note, uh, the, the, the LLM just kind of makes a proposal for a note, right? And that's also this kind of, mm-hmm. um, transparency so you can check it. But of course, when you start looking, the whole point of trying to, the the power of this is to be able to look at a lot of things that you would never be able to look at otherwise, right? But then we don't know how they're doing it. Uh, So in that case, I I totally buy what you're saying about the quantitative advantage there. But one could say, and I'd love to hear your, your view on this, 
you know, like when we're forcing people to rank things on a one to five, we don't really know how that's being structured either. Like, how did this thing become a five? How did this thing become a four? Yeah. How did this thing become a three? You know, so I wonder if there's some way here to perhaps actually we could improve quant models too by studying that phenomena with this kind of stuff. So I, I don't know, I, perhaps I'm just going on a big rant now, but this is extremely fascinating to me as an ex-social scientist, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what you're I mean, what you're hitting on in a ton of ways is is how do you know that the measures are valid, right? These are these are the validity questions, and so for what we do, I think it's 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 interesting because this comes up a lot, and to me, this depends a ton on what your goal is. So, if you are a an academic whose goal is to try to clearly uh, describe and show control and manipulation of variables that exist in the in the natural world i think it matters deeply about you know the, what what your three on the Likert scale is versus not if you are trying to make business decisions in a fast-moving environment where you are simply trying to get signal of where to move next you don't need it like i i know and i know i know that i'll i i'm gonna i'll get some angry uh messages from some people but like I'm not saying it's not good and we shouldn't try, but most of the time you don't need it. What you need is signal in the right direction. Um, and and to, to be clear, what I'm saying is running like a full uh, measurement evalu uh, uh, validity evaluation on, you know, whatever your measurement instrument is. It's like, no, we, we, you know, it's a little bit of like, come on, people, we throw together liquid scales or whatever all the time. Um, and, and the best people, I think, use the ones that have been validated uh, in other ways, but a lot of times we'll just throw it together and because that's kind of what you need in some parts of our job. Other parts of our job, you need strong validity and uh, very, very strong rigor. Uh, and other times you need light signal. Kind of kind of tie it back. I think that's what the top researchers do is they're able to flow between those with ease and they know when to do each one. Yeah, I mean, we still have this problem today when you do like five interviews or whatever, you know, you can learn a lot from just looking at like whatever five moderated usability tests. You can learn a lot, even if it's not like statistically whatever significant. So it's it's not that new in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's what I'll tell people. I'm like, as a UX researcher, my, my superpower is I'll talk to a stranger for an hour and a half without being the one in power. And, and very few people are willing to do that. And, you know, you do that. If you're the only person who's done that on the whole team, you have a deep insight that nobody else actually has. Um, yeah, th this is what we used to, a little bit of a tangent, but hopefully helpful. Of, you know, we used to talk to, especially junior researchers, and they'll go to a meeting and somebody will challenge their research and they'll kind of like back down or they don't want to speak beyond the data. And, you know, we used to talk to them and say, say, you're the only, a lot of times it's like, you're the only human on earth who has talked to 50 users of this product. Literally, not the PM, not the direct, not the eng lead, like no, nobody else. You're the only human on the whole planet who has talked to this many people who use our product. So your view, your point of view, even if you don't have data, is deeply valuable. Your instincts are deeply valuable. Like if I took away the title and I said, you know, it's not a UX feature, it's a whatever. And they've talked to 100 people who have used our product. Do you want to hear what their take is on this thing? Like nobody in management would say no. Nobody would be like, no, no, we're good, we're good. No, they should stick to data. I don't want to hear that. Like it's ridiculous. So, 
Yeah, and, and I mean, they that's the classic in like management consulting. I think the classic, one of the McKinsey founders or something like that has this famous reputation of like having pumped gas for like a week or something to understand like a gas station. It's like, that's what management will go do when they need to kind of, they just, you know, so I think that's a very good point actually in all of this that, that uh, kind of a good to remember, it's easy to get lost in all this excitement about the LLMs and the AI and all this stuff that is kind of very abstract, right? It's very like, it's going to do something it's going to look at all of this huge data that's going to come up with something. And it's like, to, to, it's actually a great reminder uh, of something that is already true today, which is that just like having people talking to real humans about real problems in real context is actually super powerful. So, so um, it's like what you said about the, the, the what do we call it? The, uh, the, 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 the emotional reaction of hearing that like, you know, um, this technology is going to replace uh, replace your researchers is kind of making us realize that, well, actually, there's actually some stuff that we do here that is very valuable and unique. And it's still the case today, even if we're not using these technologies, I think this is kind of an old problem. So, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a gift. It's honestly a gift because it makes us examine what is it that we do? Like, what is it that we're doing here? And I, you know, I also believe that it's, it's this, so I, I think UX research, uh, another in design to some degree, but I think UX research has it the worst. I, I believe that we have this collective Jungian trauma of not being at the table, and so so we take anything that could be like status taking from us. It's like ah, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we fought so hard to get here, you know, and and all this kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, it's a funny thing too. I, I feel like uh, in a lot of ways, uh, like yeah, UX researchers they don't know how to not be the underdogs in a lot of ways. And so I would challenge people to say like, to say, no, you have a seat at the table. Um, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe, uh, but like if you have a seat at the table and you know the value that you bring, which is not your ability to like, you know, transcript things quickly. And now you have a, a brand new, hopefully powerful tool that will help you do those important things. You know, that's a good thing. Like that's that's power and influence. Um, those are those are pauses. Those are things that you know the field has been looking for for a long time. That was the perfect uh, ending to the first episode <laughs> of of this season. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, t I totally agree. I have nothing to add. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, I would have loved to continue this. Uh, you know, listeners of this uh, of this podcast know that this is how every episode ends. It's just like I could have gone on here for for hours, but we got to <laughs> respect people's time, and yep. you know, these are endless discussions. So, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Is there any place where people uh, can kind of reach out or read your thoughts or or stuff like that that you want to kind of plug? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. Jess Holbrook, uh, my Twitter or X or whatever we call it these days is uh, J-E-S-S-S-C-O-N. Uh, it's the same on threads. Yeah, I'm on threads. I'm using threads. Check it out. I actually really like it. Uh, I'm not just saying that. I actually really like it. Um, yeah, I don't know. You can search. Everyone can search. They can find us. <laughs> it's perfect. Ask, it's ask the LLM. Ask yeah, the LLM. ask the LLM. Yeah, yeah. Go, go ask. Uh, actually, that'd be really interesting. We should go ask ChatGPT, Bard, Meta AI, uh, maybe Claude, you know, a few others, see what they say. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Uh,